Good morning. I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas, Senior Pastor here at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. Welcome all who join us for the study of God's Word. Uh, those here in our gymnasium physically present with us. Uh, those in the greater St. Louis area join us on radio at KFUO 850 AM. And those literally could be around the world joining us on KFUO.org. Welcome, and we're glad you're able to join us in the study of God's Word. Uh, first of all, a, uh, a little commercial, uh, if we can. Uh, this coming Tuesday, in a couple days, we'll be having a couple of services, and they are entitled a Service of Scripture, Prayer, and Hymns for Our Nation. And uh, those uh, services will take place, first of all, at noon. Uh, for those who would rather not drive at night, and perhaps even those who might want to come on their lunch break, and then at 5.30. And that would be uh, in the hope maybe catch some people on the way home from work and worship with us. Uh, there will not be communion. There will not be a sermon, just exactly what the title describes, a service of scripture, prayer, and hymns for our nation. Uh, you must sign up for this service. We are limiting it to 150 for both of those services as we normally do here at St. Paul's. And uh, just a little sidelight, uh, this is not a comment at all, but... Uh, it is a fact that apparently our, our ad for this service was pulled off of Facebook uh, earlier this morning uh, because it was deemed to be political in nature. So we're trying to get the word out as much as we can every time we have a chance. Uh, and I can assure anyone who is listening that it is not political in nature. Uh, we never back any particular candidate or party uh, at all. It is simply, again, what it is described to be for our nation in general. So, again, we... Uh, would encourage you, if you are able to, to join us on Tuesday, either at noon or at 5.30. Then, uh, as we normally do in this class, we'll be looking at the scripture lessons that at least we will be having here at St. Paul's next week. And I make that comment because next Sunday begins National Lutheran Schools Week. Uh, and so the readings that ordinarily would be up for next Sunday in the three-year lectionary series, we are not going to be studying here this morning. We're going to be studying... Uh, actually, uh, ones that, uh, for the most part, I chose for National Lutheran Schools Week. Uh, the theme for National Lutheran Schools Week is Sent to Serve, and it's based on the last verse of our gospel lesson that we will get to, where Jesus says, Just as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That's about all I had, so I went from there and uh, took the, the rest of the gospel lesson and some other lessons that I hope will emphasize humble service in the kingdom. And we'll talk next week about that, uh, especially in light of the gospel lesson and what a servant we have uh, in, in the form of national Lutheran schools uh, across our nation and those who teach in them and serve in them in any capacity. So we'll be talking about that next week in greater detail and studying that uh, here today, those scripture lessons. Let's begin with a word of prayer, then, if we might. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you that your Son has served us and all people by coming and living the perfect life amongst us and then offering that perfect life on the cross as payment in full for the sins of the world. And we thank you that through faith and trust in him, we have forgiveness and everlasting life. And we thank you also for the blessing of Lutheran schools across our nation, 
We thank you for those who teach and those who serve on the staffs of those schools, and we pray for all the children who are enrolled in those schools as well. We pray your Holy Spirit will guide and bless us as we study your word this day, that we might grow in our understanding and knowledge of that word, and especially also in your will for us as your children here. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, I think everybody's got a sheet uh, that's here. There are sheets on the side there if you like. And first of all, I want to look at the collect for next Sunday. And that collect is simply a short prayer that sort of summarizes, you might say, the theme for the day. And you'll notice here the emphasis on humility versus pride. And again, we're going to be looking at the whole sort of overarching theme of humble service versus the world's idea of greatness, uh, which is quite different in many cases from humble service. So the collect says, O God, you resist the proud and give grace to the humble. Grant us true humility after the likeness of your only Son, that we may never be arrogant and prideful and thus provoke your wrath, but in all lowliness be made partakers of the gifts of your grace through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so again, you see, the, the, it's pretty, pretty self-evident, I'm sure, that you, know, you resist the proud, give grace to the humble, give us humility, and that we may never be arrogant and prideful or puffed up with pride, and, but may in all lowliness be made partakers of the gifts of your grace. And you know, this is one of the areas that Certainly in the kingdom of God, there is this contrast between the way the world assesses greatness, right, and the way God addresses the greatness. And in the, in the eyes of the world, you know, you think of some of the measures of greatness that the world uses, right, in terms of, well, we were just talking about social media, how many followers you have, how many likes you get for a post, or you think of, uh, you, you know, your position that you hold and how many people you are, quote-unquote, over and supervising or the size of your bank account or the, your home or how famous you are worldwide. You know, when you really get famous, apparently you can just be known by your first name, right? Like, like Oprah, for example. And that's the way the world assesses greatness, but it's quite different in the kingdom of God. And we're going to see quite a contrast, especially in the gospel lesson, that it's not any of those things, but it's rather through service with Christ, again, as our example. Uh, let's take a look at this psalm. I uh, obviously chose Psalm 78 here, which talks about telling future generations the wonders of God. And in fact, verse 4 of, 70, of Psalm 78 is our theme verse for the capital campaign we did here for our new school called Tell the Next Generation, and we'll see how that that verse fits very well, the whole concept of what we attempt to do with a Lutheran school. So first of all, I just wanted to say that the Psalm 78 is the second longest psalm in the book of Psalms. Anybody know what the first, the, the very longest one is? 119, yeah, uh, dealing with the Word of God. And this is the second longest. Uh, verses 1 through 4 teach us about telling about the next generation, and 5 through 8 we'll look at about God's appointed law. Uh, it was written by, if you, if we, in, the, in the Bible, if, uh, it says a maskil of Asaph, and a maskil is simply a 
uh, it's translated skilled or artistic piece. So this psalm would be considered an artistic piece. And this guy Asaph, A-S-A-P-H, uh, was one of the psalm leaders in the tabernacle, in the Old Testament tabernacle. And so he composed this psalm, used by God to compose this psalm. Um, we read about him, for those at home too, in First Chronicles 6, 31 and 39, if you want to look at that later, that's where we see him. He wrote Psalm 50 and Psalms 73 through 83. So he wrote 11 that we're aware of anyway that have his name associated with them. So this is one of the ones that's not written by David. Uh, David wrote a great many of them, but not this one. Okay? All right, let's go on and let's read, uh, first of all, verses 1 through 4 and then go on and talk about it. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. Okay? So going back to verse 1, the uh, psalmist here, Asaph, is sort of saying, you might, you might say, uh, listen up. You know, give ear <laughs> to my teaching. Incline your ear toward me. You know, listen up. Take, take note. Um, he says in verse 2, I will open my mouth in a parable. Now, obviously, who else told a whole bunch of parables? Jesus. In fact, about a third of his teaching uh, is in the form of a parable. A, uh, in the New Testament especially, uh, Jesus' parables, you know, are simply a story uh, using earthly details to teach something about life in the kingdom of God, uh, a truth or um, a, something that is to be learned about the, teach, about the kingdom of God. And notice there, he says in verse 2 that these parables are dark sayings. Now, they're not dark sayings in the sense we think of darkness as evil. They're dark in the sense that sometimes they're not easily understood. We have that expression, don't we? I'm in the dark about that means I don't understand that. I hear the words, but I don't understand what you mean. And actually, Jesus quotes this verse in Matthew 13 after he has been giving a parable after parable after parable and teaching through parables. And he says in verse, uh, this is Matthew 13, 34 and 35. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And then here he quotes this verse, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. So the meaning is sometimes hidden and in teaching through parables, Jesus, or here in the Old Testament, Asaph, is making these things known. Probably the biggest thing that, well, a couple of big things that were hidden, right, is that Jesus is, in fact, the long-awaited Messiah, and God made that known in various ways. Another thing that was hidden from a lot of people is that salvation is not only for the Jews, but for the Gentiles as well. And God had to make that known 
and so on. So there are these things that are called, uh, they're hidden, they're re- but then they are revealed to us by God primarily in his word. Uh, and notice there, verse 3, things that we have heard and known that our fathers told us. What does that say about the, well, we talk about uh, the Christian faith even today. How is it passed down, or hopefully passed down? From generation to generation, or in this case, our fathers told us, right? And we see there that um, what would be some of the things, perhaps, if we go back to the Old Testament, what would be some of the things that their fathers would have told them about what God did in the past in the Old Testament for them? Think of anything? Yeah, the exodus out of Egypt, delivering them from Egypt, right? The great uh, 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 rescue of, of his people and freeing of his people from their slavery in Egypt, which included, right, the crossing of the Red Sea and, you know, miraculous and, and the plagues even before that in an attempt to get release. Uh, anything else? Where were they for 40 years? In the wilderness, yeah, and God provided for them, didn't he? Provided uh, manna and, and water and even meat uh, and so on. So these would be probably among some of the wonders that their fathers would have told them about what God has done in the past. Now here comes verse 4. And in fact, uh, you know, I just thought of this. Um, Ephesians 6 verse 4 is a New Testament counterpart to that, and it's addressed to fathers. It says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the wisdom and admonition of the Lord. So it's interesting that in the book of Ephesians, there is a particular responsibility that God gives to fathers. doesn't mean mom's not involved at all in this, but God says specifically addresses fathers, to bring their children up in the wisdom and admonition of the Lord. Now, unfortunately, we see sometimes where fathers in some families do not fulfill that for their children. They do not um, take that seriously, and we see, uh, thankfully, uh, mothers stepping in, uh, and, and they pretty much provide all of the spiritual nurture and care for their children. But um, same thing here. We see this pattern in the Old Testament of the fathers passing down. And in the New Testament, Paul picks up on that as well. Now let's get to verse 4. This is, again, this is the verse from which we, uh, sort of our our key verse or basis for our capital campaign titled, Tell the Next Generation. We will not hide them from their children. Whose children? But tell the coming generation. So we will not hide these things from the children of the coming generation, the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. We talked already about some of the wonders that the psalmist back in those times, in the Old Testament times, would tell their children about. What are some of the wonders today that we tell our children about, the wonders God has done? What would they include? Got a creation, okay, yeah, formed, formed all that we see around us. What else? Baptism, yeah, it makes 
washes all our sins away, makes us clean, makes us heirs of heaven, forgiveness of sin. What else? I'm sorry. The Lord's Supper, yeah, on Monday, Thursday, right, transforms the Passover meal into something completely different. Uh, and they're giving us body and blood and forgiveness. The resurrection on Easter, you know, and uh, proving that it's victory over sin, death, and the grave, not only for him, but for all who believe. And, of course, I guess we could back up uh, in between those days and talk about Good Friday, right, that he would for us and for all people, lay down his life sacrificially for us. And we could think of many other things, but those are some of the key ones, of course, for us today that we want to pass on to our children and tell the next generation, generation after generation after generation, of the wonders that God has done and continues to do. And uh, that's, of course, what is the blessing of what goes on in our in our classrooms here and in I think it's 1900 different Lutheran schools is that <laughs> I don't want to put you on the spot I think I saw that on a brochure if you include uh, not only the K through 8 but the uh, preschools and high schools and so on I think it's I, I should have looked that up before I threw out a number but I think it's about that anyway um, so that again a great blessing that takes place day after day and helps tell the next generation and beyond that. Okay, now let's go to verses 5 through 8 to finish up this psalm. And uh, let's read it through first, and then we'll come back and go through it. He established a testimony in Jacob, this would be God, of course, and appointed a law in Israel, while he commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them the children yet unborn, and arise to tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. So the testimony in Jacob, we won't uh, look at it right now, uh, just for time purposes. Uh, we think there's probably a pointing to uh, Exodus chapter 19, verses 3 through 6, um, where God reminds his people. He testifies as to what he has done in exactly what we were talking about before, bringing his people up from Egypt. And he says there, um, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So it's that covenant that he makes after he brings them out of their, their uh, captivity in Egypt. The law, of course, Mount Sinai, commanding our fathers to teach their children. And yet, uh, verse 6, you know, I was thinking about that. Isn't that an incredible thing when you stop and think about it, that even children yet unborn will be on the receiving end of this good news. And, and even they, they then will turn around and arise and tell them to their children. And you know, you stop and think, we've got, uh, for those that are not from here, we've got a, a wonderful new school building that, that God has blessed us with. And you know, you stop and think, how many children in the coming generations, they're yet unborn, are going to be in those classrooms and are going to hear about their Savior, you know, in those classrooms. We don't even know who they are yet. They haven't even been born. 
and their children, you know. Uh, it's just uh, amazing. And then let's think back the other way in the past to our forefathers here, if we just localize this, to, to De Pere, who had the foresight, you know, it has always been St. Paul's Lutheran Church and school. It's not like the school came on later as an afterthought. It has always been that way. And think again of, you know, the same kind of desire was there right from the beginning in this congregation and in many others like it across our church body that future generations will actually hear about the wonders that God has done. And so what's the result in verse 7? So that they should set their hope in God. That is the bottom line, right? Set their hope in God. And then kind of an interesting thing, and not forget the works of God. And you know, I was thinking, this, when we stop and think about it, this is one of the reasons, not the only reason, but it's one of the reasons that we have a church year calendar that we keep going around year after year, and it emphasizes at many points the wonders God has done. So that every year we are reminded again about some of the things we just mentioned a few minutes ago, right? That we're reminded of Christ on Monday, Thursday, uh, you know, beginning a wonderful new meal uh, for us, giving us his body, blood, and forgiveness. We were reminded just uh, last week about baptism, weren't we? When we, we celebrated the baptism of our Lord and took the opportunity to talk about baptism. On Good Friday, we're reminded again about his, his death on the cross, Easter, his resurrection. Uh, so we do these things year after year in this church year calendar. One of the reasons is so that we don't forget, you know, what God has done for us. And you think, oh, that, how, how in the world could we forget that? Well, I don't know. It seems like God's people forgot for a while when they came into the promised land and started worshiping all the false gods. And you wonder, you know, uh, what's that old saying that the Christian church is only one generation away from extinction? And, and we have to keep reminding, through, God has to keep reminding us, again, of the truths of his word in the midst of a, uh, you know, a, a world that would deceive us and uh, call us away from those things. Okay? So again, that's just, uh, something that, and, and there are, uh, children, again, in Lutheran schools, year after year, as we go through the years, are reminded in their classrooms about these things as well. So it's a, this Psalm 78 is a wonderful psalm, I think, in connection with uh, education, especially Christian education, though, and, uh, rem and uh, reminding our children, teaching our children, and yet even children yet unborn, uh, which is such an amazing thing to consider. All right? So that's a quick run through Psalm 78. Any questions or comments at all before we move on? No? All right. Let's go then to the Old Testament lesson. And this is Deuteronomy chapter 8. Uh, and uh, let's read the first few verses and then come back. Take care lest you, here we go, forget the Lord. There it is again, see? And again, we would think, how in the world could that happen? Well, easier, unfortunately, than we would think. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by 
not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest you have eaten and, the, and are full and have built good houses and live in them. And when your beds and herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God. There's kind of a general principle that's, that's being laid out here in, this, in these verses by, in Deuteronomy. And that is, when do we at times feel as though we can keep God at arm's length and we really don't need him that much in our life anyway? Is it when things are going great and our bank account is exploding and we've got everything's going great, we just got another promotion? Or is it when we're facing hardship and facing trial, right? And in the uh, Deuteronomy here, uh, we see Moses talking about when things, you know, he says, you know, you come into this land, which God is going to give them, and it's going to be an incredible land flowing with milk and honey and so on. And unfortunately, there's a temptation then to think that, you know, we can do it all ourselves. We don't really need God. Look at all this that we've got around us. And that can be the, the curse, we might say, of blessings like that, that they can, if we're not careful, the old human nature, sinful nature, can say, look at what we've got. Oh, yeah, God. Well, we, well yeah, okay. And before you know it, God is sort of a, a distant memory. And while we never go seeking hardships or seeking trials, uh, yet God works and does some of his most marvelous work, even in the midst of incredible trials and sufferings, even such as we are going through right now uh, in our nation with this pandemic, that, you know, God is doing some great things, even in the midst of this. And so, you know, here Moses is pleading with the people, you know, don't forget about God. We would think, we would think that's, you know, go, should, shouldn't even have to be spoken. Uh, but it is. And then he goes on in verse 14 in the middle there. He reminds them of what God did. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. where they, That's what they were in Egypt. Who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness. So he, he recounts how God you know, basically provided for them when they were in the wilderness. Again, remember it was God doing this with its fiery serpents and scorpions. Um, we won't take the time to read this, but it's in Numbers chapter 21, where God's people start complaining that, uh, what'd you do, just bring us out here to have us die? And God sends fiery serpents into the, into the uh, camp and as, as, as sort of a, well, actually a punishment uh, for their disobedience and, and rebellion. And some of the people are getting bit by these serpents. And then they come to Moses. Oh, we're sorry, we're sorry. We shouldn't have spoken against the Lord. And Moses, uh, God tells them to put a serpent up on a, on a pole. And anyone who is bitten and looks at that serpent on that pole will live. Now, Jesus makes use of that. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so will the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Same thing, okay? So he, he, they're reminding how God uh, spared them even though their rebellion took place uh, and, and they're arguing against them. Uh, and thirsty ground where there was no water. We know 
On more than one occasion, God provided water for them out there in the wilderness. Who brought you water out of the flinty rock? Um, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know? They didn't even know what it was either. Manna, manna literally is translated in the Old Testament. What is that? <laughs> they had no idea what that stuff was. And yet God provided it for them every morning, morning after morning. There it is. Um, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. You know, when you think about it, it's there when they are in the wilderness and they have no way to provide for themselves, they had no choice but to realize how much they depended on God for everything, literally, for life itself, for food, for water, uh, and every uh, provision uh, that he, he did provide for them, right? And sometimes today we, we kind of forget that. You know, we think about that, oh, I, I earned this, and, you know, this is my, what, what I uh, received. And we forget, and as Christians, we always want to remind ourselves that these all come from the, the gracious hand of God. Everything that we have comes from his hand. You know, as Paul said, you know, uh, I think it is in 1 Corinthians, what, what, did, what do you have that you did not receive? Nothing. Everything we got, we have received from the gracious hand of God. Okay? Um, then going on, uh, verse 17, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. So again, we see in these words that same theme of humbleness versus the arrogance of, you know, this is mine, I deserve it, I earned it. No, we are humbled before God in the face of his provisions, in the face of um, what he has provided for us. Okay? Now, I want to skip to the gospel lesson just to make sure we get this in, and we'll come back and pick up Romans. But I want to make sure we get this um, Matthew 20, verses 20 through 28 uh, in. There could not be a bigger contrast than we have in our text and what came right before it. And um, let's read through Matthew 20, 20 through 28, and then I'm going to go back and uh, go through this. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, 
And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And again, that's the, that's the theme verse for next week's National Lutheran Schools Week. Now, I said there could not be a bigger contrast. Do you know what, what Jesus said right before this in Matthew? In Matthew 20, verses 17 through 19, here's what Jesus says to his disciples. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and on the way said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. That's what Jesus says in the three verses right before our text. You know, talking about the, the humble um, uh, way that he is going to... Here, here we have the Almighty God himself, who was there at the creation through whom everything was created, now comes and lives amongst us and has just spoken about how he is going to go to the cross and be crucified. And the very next thing we get in Matthew is this incident where James, John, and Mom come up and she bows down before him and asks the question, how about my boys? Can one sit at your right and one at your left? In other words, you've just had the ultimate expression of humility from Jesus. And now you have something that couldn't be more opposite, right? Uh, she's not, she's not um, talking about humility here. She is talking about, can my boys be number two and number three in power? And she's expecting that he's going to come into reign in some way. She doesn't understand what she's asking. Let's go back here and take a look at this. Um, the sons of Zebedee would be James and John, uh, two fishermen. And we think in contrast to Peter that uh, they, their fishing business, this Zebedee, uh, was apparently a pretty uh, affluent and had a pretty good-sized business going. Because when he calls James and John, it says there that, and this is in uh, John 4, that they left their boats and the servants and followed Jesus. So this, apparently they had quite a crew there, and we think that they were, they were pretty, uh, pretty affluent. And then there's one other little bit of, of uh, a hint at this, that after Jesus is arrested, uh, it seems that John was known by the high priest and got to go further into the courtyard there, and he's the one who lets Peter into the courtyard later, where Peter ends up denying Jesus three times. Now, how is he known by the chief priest? We think because, again, his family was pretty affluent. and He was known by the high priest, who was also a Sadducee and would have been affluent. Now, again, that's not, that's not directly spoken of in Scripture, but it seems like they were fairly affluent. Um, so they are wanting to, in this kingdom that they think is going to come, they want to be affluent and powerful there as well. You know, can they have the number two and number three spots in the kingdom? And uh, also, let me just tell you, there is, and we cannot prove this, so don't take this to the bank, but there are a number of scholars who think that the mother here, who's not named, 
her name, that her name is Salome, sister to Mary. So now you add that, to, if that's true, and I'm just saying that we can't prove it, but you have to go between John and Mark and Matthew at the cross and try and figure this whole thing out, and in the end you can't say for sure. But if that is true, here comes his aunt bowing down before him. Can you do something for these two sons of mine who are, what, to you then? If, if that's true, cousins, yeah. So there may be also a family dynamic going on here. Uh, we, we wish that, uh, you know, Matthew would have spelled this out even further, but, so we just don't know. But I'll just tell you, you can definitely read this uh, out there. Whether it was true or not, I guess in the end doesn't matter, but it might have added another layer of pressure on Jesus. Now, let's jump down to verse 22. Notice how Jesus sidesteps uh, the mother of James and John. He, she comes and makes the request. In Mark chapter 10, we know that they also wanted this. James and John wanted this. And it's interesting, Jesus doesn't have the conversation back with the mother of James and John. He pivots to James and John and says, uh, answered, you do not know what you are asking, and they truly did not. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Now, the cup that he is talking about here, that we, we look, could look at a lot of Old Testament passages, would be the cup of God's wrath. And drinking that cup would be a, a way of saying, a metaphor for saying, uh, be on the receiving end of God's wrath or experience God's wrath. Uh, drinking that cup. And, of course... Jesus is referring to exactly what's going to be coming up on the cross, where he is going to take the full brunt of the wrath of God over sin. And we know that on that cross, he drank that cup empty, didn't he? He drank every last drop of the wrath of God and experienced it there in our place. So he's saying to them, you don't know really what you're asking for, to sit at my right and sit at my left. Are you able to drink that cup that, that I'm going to have to drink? And what's their response? Oh, yeah, no problem. And, you know, they, they think, again, they, they can't get through their head. They think he's talking about power and prestige and ruling in this new kingdom. He's talking about just the opposite. He's talking about being, actually being crucified. Are you able to, are you able to take this too? Oh, sure. <laughs> They had no concept of what they were saying. And uh, notice he says there, uh, notice there, what prediction does he make in verse 23? When he says, you will drink my cup. What's he in effect telling them? You're going to experience, now not to the same extent, but you're going to drink from that cup as well. And, unfor well, yeah, unfortunately, uh, that's exactly what happened. Uh, James is the first of the apostles to be killed, to be martyred. It's in Acts chapter 12, uh, done just to try and please the, please the Jews and, and uh, sort of, um, uh, what do you call that, when you, uh, well, satisfy them, I guess you'd say. Uh, he, is, he is martyred. And John now, interestingly, is the only of the apostles 
who we think was not martyred, who was not killed because of his faith, but that doesn't mean he had an easy life. He was exiled to the island of Patmos for several years. We don't know exactly how many years that was. Uh, and then lived out his latter days, at least tradition has it, uh, in the city of Ephesus. And uh, you'll remember, on the cross, what uh, responsibility did Jesus assign to John? Care for his mother Mary. Yeah, behold your mother, behold your son. And tradition has it that that's exactly what John did uh, in the city of Ephesus. Uh, lived out his days there. And he was very young, of course, when he was called, but lived out until, uh, you'll find scholars varying on this, but somewhere around 100 to 105 A.D., somewhere in that, in that vicinity, until he died. And uh, was, again, the only one, we think, that was not actually killed as a result of his preaching and teaching Christ. So they are going to drink of his cup. Uh, so he's kind of letting them know there without, again, they, they, they don't know what he's talking about yet, but the, you're going to do that. But to sit at my right and my left is not mine to grant. It is for those whom it has been prepared by my Father. So Jesus also, always knows how he always defers to the Father and the Father's will. Whatever my Father's will is, that's what's going to happen. Okay? Um, now in verse 24, why do you think the other ten are indignant here. Are they indignant because they thought, what an inappropriate question for the mother of these two guys to come and ask Jesus? Is that the reason you think that they're, they're indignant with these guys? Jealous, yeah. Because what? They wanted those positions, right? We know that on more, more than one occasion, the disciples themselves, without the, the mother of James and John being there, were arguing about which one of them is the greatest. You know, wouldn't you love to hear their, their uh, rationalization for why they should be number one, you know? And uh, they probably all had some, some reason or more than one reason why they should be top dogs. And, uh, and they were indignant, we think, and, and this shows how widespread this was. And isn't that ironic that even in the midst of the disciples, uh, that there is that kind of um, power-grabbing and desire for power and prestige and prominence. Uh, is that a danger for the church today? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I referenced before how we've been blessed with this wonderful new school building. How could we use that in the wrong way? Or talk about it, speak about it in the wrong way? Yeah, look at us, right? Now we're better than that church's school down, down the road here. And, you know, we, we've got to always be careful about things like that, that it's not about us and it's not about our, our being served or our being great. Our greatness is only done through service to others and what happens inside the walls of that, of that building and how others hear about Jesus in and through it. So, you know, even the irony, uh, just thinking about this, do you remember what Jesus did on Monday, Thursday in the upper room as an incredible trying to teach his disciples humility? Stoop down and wash their feet. And Peter said, Lord, you should not be washing my feet, which is exactly right. But again, trying to demonstrate for them humility, that he would stoop down and do what even many servants in the household would not do, there for his own disciples. Okay? And so then... Going on, 
um, verse 25, uh, Jesus corrects their misunderstanding. He says to them, uh, you know that the rulers and the Gentiles lorded over them or have you know, exercised great authority over them, and their ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. So again, greatness is service, not being served. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. See, the exact opposite of the way the world thinks of these things. And then again, just as, or even as, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom. Now, let me ask you this. What's, what's a ransom? What's a ransom? Payment. To free somebody, right? Somebody's being held captive. Uh, if you've got a, in our modern day, if you've got a kidnapper, they, they may put out a request for a ransom, right? So it's a payment that is made in order to free somebody from the captivity that they're in. So obviously Jesus did not, he's not talking about a ransom with gold or silver or some kind of currency, but what ransom did he pay? His, his blood shed, his life given, right? And that freed us. We were captive, weren't we? To sin, death, and the devil. And he, in effect, freed us from our captivity. Okay? So, um, and, you know, something we don't want to just pass over here, no pun intended, uh, but what does this tell us about Jesus? He knew exactly what was coming, didn't he? This is before the crucifixion. He knew exactly what was coming. He's coming to pay a ransom for many. And, and even before this, remember, right before these verses, he spelled it out for them. You know? He's going to be uh, mocked. He's going to be arrested, mocked, flogged, crucified, and rise again. And, you know, you can't help, you read through the Gospels and you think, how could anybody think? that Jesus is not the Messiah. He knows what's coming. He tells them what's coming, you know? And he tells them, you know, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. As uh, Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, so the Son of Man will be in the earth for three days. I mean, he, had, he, he predicted it on numerous times, and then went on to do it, went on to give the, make the payment, make the ransom payment for us, okay? So that's a, the main thrust next week uh, will be on, again, humble service as exemplified by Jesus. But Jesus is much more than just an example of humility for us, isn't he? He is our Savior by his bloodshed as well. Okay, any questions, any comments on uh, this, this gospel lesson, which will be the main anchor for, for next week? Anything? All right, let's go back then, and we'll pick up the epistle lesson from Romans chapter 12. And I just want to make sure, again, that we had enough time to make sure we got that gospel lesson in. Um, in Romans 12 here, I chose this because, again, it talks about using the gifts that God has given us in all uh, with great zeal. And so it's a little bit different in terms of humble service versus... Uh, just using the gifts that God has given us and teaching is one of those gifts mentioned here. Let's start with verse 3. By the grace given to me. Now let's stop right there. That's <laughs> not too far. Uh, first of all, what is grace? If we were to say, what's, what's a definition for grace? 
Yes, thank you, verse. Undeserved, unmerited love that God shows for us, right? We don't earn it. We certainly don't deserve it. But God extends love to us in spite of our sinfulness. Now, why do you think Paul, in particular, would be very cognizant of the fact that he has received grace from God? What did Paul do before he was an apostle? Actually persecuted Christians, right? In fact, he's on the road in Acts 9, he's on the road to Damascus, not to have a party, but to bring Christians back and have them be jailed and face trial. So Paul was, you know, in other places, Paul will t talk about himself as the least of the apostles and one untimely born. He, he knew this. He, he knew how incredibly fortunate he was that God exercised grace toward him and what a huge amount of grace it was. So, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Now, there's the humble, humility part there, right? Not to think of yourself more highly than he ought to think. Um, we could talk about that uh, today. There are, aren't there many ways that, uh, I'll just take pastors, for example, uh, pick on ourselves, uh, what are, some, what are some things that lead, could lead to pastors thinking more highly of themselves than uh, the facts would indicate, <laughs> than reality would indicate? What, what, leads, what leads to a pastor getting a you know, uh, puffed up uh, head that can't fit through the door any longer? A what? Okay, big congregation, yeah. Uh, you know, sometimes when pastors get together, well, how many members do you have? How many members do you have, you know? Oh, okay, well, my, uh, it's about 2,700. And, you know, again, that's, if, if he's got that attitude, that's going to that's gonna be trouble. What else? You think of anything else that could lead to pastors getting a pride? Yes, yes. Pastor, that was a great sermon. Pastor, you know, pastor, 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 pastor. And if you're not careful, uh, that, you know, can start uh, affecting your, your outlook on yourself and on even on the ministry and um, you know we have seen cases where guys begin to think that that they're so good that uh, you know some of the uh, regular rules don't apply to them anymore and that's the next step is getting in trouble and unfortunately we've seen that happen far too often uh, in, in the Christian church so don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think but to think with sober judgment. So you kind of recognize that uh, you're, not, you're not the main thing here, right? It's not about you. And each according to the measure of faith that he has, uh, that God has assigned. So again, recognizing that all this that we have is a gift from God. It is received simply by faith. Now here's the great analogy here. Paul uses this in a number of places. Thinking of the church, speaking of the church, as a human body, as a body. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. This is a, you know, 
there's a couple of main uh, images or metaphors that Paul uses in the New Testament to talk about the church. One is the body like this. Another is a building with Christ as the cornerstone. And we are living stones being built up into that. That's another metaphor. He's trying to get across here in this metaphor, isn't he, that we are all part of this body, so we can't say we're apart from it. it is, and that we are, I always find it interesting, he says there, we are many members, but we do not all have the same function, right? And we see that in the church, and he's going to get into some of those specific ones. We all have these different functions, and they are all used by God to build up the body, but notice he says there, we are individually members one of another. So we are members and we are serving God, but we are also serving one another, aren't we? We, are, we share these things in common that we are all members of the body. And so we share a fellowship of the faith in Christ, uh, baptism together, one baptism, one Lord, one faith, and so on. We share uh, fellowship in the Lord's Supper together. These are all things we share together as a result of being members of the body. Verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, now, let's say a word about prophecy. Um, prophecy is not just predicting the future. It is also simply used throughout the scriptures to talk about what it was very close to actually just teaching uh, and uh, proclaiming the word of God and telling people what the will of God is based on his word to us. If you look at the prophets in the Old Testament, actually the majority of what they did was not predict the future or prophesy the future, but actually preach the word of God to people and apply it to their lives. So if prophecy in proportion... Uh, to our faith, if service, so here we go again, and that's that Greek word diakonia, where we get the word deaconess from, in, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching. And so if the one who exhorts, or another way of, of translating exhorts, is encourages in his encouraging. I think, uh, just to stop here for a moment, um, this whole idea of encouragement, and I, I, we are really blessed here at St. Paul's with so many people who are encouragers, I would say, who, who will have a positive word, uh, you know, to, to kind of lift you up. And, and I wrote down a quote here, I forget where I got this, but that encouragement is a marvelous gift to give and even more wonderful to receive. Isn't that a nice way to think about it? And, and that encouraging of one another versus, you know, what we see a lot of going on, unfortunately, today in the world where it seems like people want to tear each other down and, you know, actually uh, cancel one another. Uh, encouraging one another is just an incredibly great thing uh, in the body of Christ. The one who contributes, so, you know, generosity. Uh, and we have people definitely have the, that gift of generosity. Whether they have been blessed with a lot in terms of material goods or not, they have a gift of generosity in sharing those gifts that God has given to them. The one who leads with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy. And we have people that have really uh, been blessed and gifted in this area as well. 
You know, when this whole uh, pandemic started, we put out a plea for volunteers to assist people with anything from going shopping for them to maybe, you know, lifting something at their house or, you know, any, any help they could get. And I'll tell you, within a couple weeks, we had about 45 people that were on, had said, absolutely, I'll do it. And so, again, this whole idea of, of showing mercy to people who are in, in situations that they need help. And notice they're with cheerfulness, and that's exactly how they are. Um, in the verse 9, let love be genuine. And it literally means, genuine means without hypocrisy. In other words, uh, just for a little, we out of time, but uh, the Greeks, with the, the word hypocrite comes from a Greek word for, for an actor. And in the old Greek dramas, there would be one person playing like three different parts, and they would hold up a different mask, and they would change their voice when they wanted to change character. So the word hypocrite, you can almost see how that happens. They keep, you know, say one thing here, another thing here, and Paul says here, let your love be genuine. In other words, without hypocrisy, you're not just putting on an act. Um, Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection outdo one another in showing honor, showing honor, the humble service again. Do not be slothful. Now, what is slothful? <laughs> what, what is slothful? When I go, when go to the zoo, you see the sloth, right? Is it sloth, the real speedy and, and uh, <laughs> sloths move on. I don't know if you, I, I always, I always start laughing when I see them because they move so slowly, you know, you think, oh my goodness next to a turtle, you know. But, and, so in other words, in doing all these things, do not be slothful. It can also be translated lazy in zeal for doing these things. Be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Verse 12, rejoice in hope. And that's hope versus despair. Rejoice in the hope that you have. Uh, be patient, in other words, enduring in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. That hospitality, uh, the word is translated as a love for strangers. So brotherly love for strangers, uh, which is a key thing in the New Testament. So basically to summarize, and we're at the end of our time here, you know, Paul is telling them, use with great zeal the gifts you've been given. And we're all part of this body together, this church, body, this church together. Everybody use your gifts and do it with zeal. We all have different gifts that we've been given by God, but use them with zeal. Okay? So that's a good, good point to end on. Let's close then with the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. Thank you.